one year, I kind of got an idea. You know, I almost tried trap. I like to trap. I like to make lure, and I like to write. Where can it go from here? I would be able to spend more time in the woods. I was losing money in the fish trapping, but I didn't care. Getting the traps out there is the hardest part, I think, with them. I would leave the critters in the back of my truck in the high school parking lot. We're going to set traps, like, no matter what. Some of these guys have trapped these areas for generations. We got through the fur boom. This is Northern Michigan. This is what you do. Trappers love game trappers in a positive way. I'm going to ask you guys a question. Do you know everything? This will be fun. Trying to learn something from these legends. Ask questions without asking questions. Volumes of Herb Lennon Game Magazine. The structure from Herb Lennon. Herb Lennon's articles, the Herb Lennon ads to information, trapping radios. We are trappers and ourselves. To me, that's pretty important. Alright, everybody listening to me? Develop a system yet because we're working ahead of time to build big trapping. If you got very much the same as the you got bog trap. They start talking about these big fans. Most of my tunes are coming from up top, not down bottom. Probably the best part of the country in the world. I don't get any better. Trying to set predator trash and trash waders. The back of that beaver looks like a sheer. You better edit this part out. Yeah, it was better. Back in the fur shed. This is Trapping Today. I'm Jeremiah Wood, and it's good to be here. The podcast is brought to you by Cots Brothers Lures. Trap smarter, work harder, enjoy the success that follows. Cotsboros has a full line of trapping supplies and baits and lures. Anything you need to get started on the trap line, check them out at Cotsboros.com. That's K-A-A-T-Z. On X Maps, use your phone as a GPS on the trap line. Run your tracks, get landowner information, scout using the latest aerial imagery, mark those trap locations so you never forget where you set your traps. On xmaps.com, use the code TRAP, T-R-A-P, for 20% off your first purchase. And Moyle Mink and Tannery. When it's time to get your fur tanned, get it done by the professionals. Moyle does an awesome job. They produce a quality product, preserving your fur for the long term, whether that's to hang it on the wall, give fur as a gift, uh, make things, make items, hats, mitts, send them to my friend Josh up in Alaska. I can give you his contact info. And uh, he's been doing a bunch of fur sewing, doing an awesome job. I got friends and listeners that have sent stuff to him and and uh, gotten stuff, just sent their fur and got mitts back and, and a hat. And uh, it's uh, it's just a really, really good product. So he does a great job. Um, but you got to have that fur tanned. And sending it off to Moyle is the way to go. Moyle.net, M-O-Y-L-E.net. Contact them by email at info, I-N-F-O, at Moyle.net. If you have any questions, and let them know that you heard about them from the Trapping Today podcast, that always helps. And uh, also use that online customer portal to get your order done quicker. Certain times a year, there's going to be a long delays, and that'll really help you out. It helps them out because it saves with paperwork. You kind of fill that out online ahead of time and uh, through the customer portal. And then when they get your stuff, they kind of sneak it a little bit to the head of the line. So moil.net check them out and uh yeah that's the sponsors thanks for uh sponsors for continuing to support the show tonight's episode so i did a little bit of a change up um there's there's a bunch of things that i've got coming in the next few weeks but i had an interview that i did today uh with alvin yates and he's a trapper from southwestern maine and it was just an awesome interview i i really enjoyed it 
uh, real quality information from a super down-to-earth guy. And I thought, you know, I, I really want to get this out here. So it was kind of selfish on my part somewhat because uh, I, you know, I, I just uh, I didn't want to sit on this one for too long. So anyway, we talked for over an hour. That's uh, that's coming up right now. So it, just before we get going, a couple of other things that we've got coming on the horizon here. I had a listener, a newer listener to the podcast, give me uh, pose a pretty interesting question for me. And he was, he, you know, you listen to this intro song at the beginning of each episode. And there are little audio clips from different interviews on uh, past episodes of the podcast. And he was wondering, you know, do you have any way of, of sort of, is there a quick cheat, cheat sheet on what, where those come from, which episode each clip comes from. And, uh, so I can, you know, or, or what part of the episode, just so a guy can go and look back and, and sort of listen and get the context of, of what was said and all that. And I thought, wow, that is a really great idea. So what I want to do in a future show here sometime in the next couple of weeks is uh, is go through all of those because there are a lot of people that are just tuning in for the first time and haven't heard those. So, uh, you know, if, if people are kind of interested and, and they don't have all the time in the world to listen to the 200 and plus, 200 plus back episodes... Uh, but they hear a clip about somebody saying something and think, huh, I wonder where that's from. That'd be cool to listen to. Uh, I'm going to try to go through that and give you guys a little bit of background on that stuff. And it'll be a good chance to give a recap of some of those episodes. Uh, those are actually all from the first 100 episodes. The second 100, at some point, I was planning on doing another intro song, some different music and clips from the second 100 episodes. We'll see if we ever get to that. But anyway, uh, that's coming. I'm going to do something on boxes because I get so many questions about using boxes on the trap line, particularly because of my links exclusion devices that I'm required to use here in Maine, that we're all required to use here in Maine. And a lot of people from other states are actually interested in using them and I, or using modified versions of them. And initially I thought that was crazy, but people have brought up a lot of good points. And so I, um, I think I'm going to talk about using boxes. Uh, that that YouTube video, one of my Martin Trapline YouTube videos is like over 40,000 views now. It, I don't know how that happened, but it kind of blew up. And so I get all kinds of questions about those boxes that I show in the video. So, so um, yeah, we'll go into that. Um, Main Trappers Association convention, we had a nice campfire session with a few guys and uh, I am still working on getting that ready for a uh, public audience. <laughs> so as you can imagine, uh, a few trappers around a campfire at about 10, 11 o'clock at night, um, maybe not every word that was spoken was kid friendly. And so there's a few things I got to edit out of there just because I want to keep it uh, a pretty kid friendly show. And, and we joke that that uh, we should put the raw version behind a paywall or something. But anyway, I just got to go through that and, and clean that up a little bit. And there'll be an episode or two we'll be, we'll be uh, doing that because that, that was some interesting perspectives from, from a few different trappers that I'd never talked with before. And, and I think you would, um, and one that you have heard from, I think you'll find it interesting. Um, we'll probably do something where we catch up on trapping news a little bit. Uh, give you a little update on uh, on what's going on with the Trapping Today store and merch. I got some ideas, some things, 
for this holiday season and this trapping season that I'd like to get up there for folks uh, and and also get some feedback on what folks might be interested in seeing. And uh, yeah, so so that's coming in the next few weeks. Um, speaking of Onyx, by the way, I, I just got a tablet. I've never had one before. I get this Kindle Fire tablet. And, you know, you talk about you talk about a great user experience. If you are using Onyx on your phone, you want to take it to the next level, and you have a tablet, uh, download the app on, on the tablet, and it is amazing having that large screen size and the, uh, the convenience of not having to sit in front of your computer. You can sit back, you know, on couch, uh, laying down, getting ready to go to bed or something, and, and you can pull that up and you can look at aerial photos. It's just, uh, it's really, really nice. Uh, I've been enjoying that here the past couple of weeks. So um, anyway, yeah, I've talked enough. Let's get into the episode. Alvin Yates, this guy is someone I've, I've, uh, I've known about for a few years now. Uh, Eric Martin, we were at uh, Neil Olson's Trappers Weekend a couple years ago. And he says, he pointed over to where Alvin was. Alvin was was talking I think talking with Russ Carmen or somebody else around there and uh, he says you know who you should get on the podcast he said Alvin is one phenomenal trapper that guy is a really really good trapper he knows a lot and, and he could share a lot of information and I thought about that kept that in the back of my mind and I talked with Alvin a couple of times um, and just uh, casually and then more recently at the uh, Maine Trappers Association rendezvous um, he did a demo, and I I went and talked with him a little bit after that, and uh, and told him, hey, I'd like to give you a call and interview you here in the next couple of weeks sometime. And so we set it up, and we got it done, and let's get into it. All right, well, Alvin Yates, thanks for uh, agreeing to to talk with me about trapping here for for a little bit today. Um, you're a trapper from uh, Western Maine, right? And um, how long have you been trapping? Yeah, southwestern Maine, really. I, I live in the town of West Paris, down in Oxford County. Uh, well, I'm I'm 73, and I've, I've been trapping for, oh, 60-some years, I guess, because I started pretty young. Yep. Uh, do you, how'd you end up getting started? Well, yeah, it was a pretty simple... Uh, there's simple reason to start with it, it come down to money. Um, I grew up in a very rural area, and uh, we were poor people. I was the youngest of five, and and um, we lived on a dirt road in a in a tap paper house. And and um, back in those days, I'm talking the early 1960s when I was uh, 12, 13 years old. Um, 50 cents was a lot of money and uh, it was it was 50 cents more than I had yeah. and the, the town the towns at that time offered a bounty on uh, porcupines well um, I, I looked to me like a ready supply of cash there if I could <laughs> get you know so I, I found a few old up there probably woodchuck traps or something hanging in the cellar and and uh, I began my career as a as a bounty trapper. <laughs> um, and how'd you progress into the fur? 
Well, um, we, uh, my dad raised a lot of rabbits. I guess that was the cheapest food he could get for the five of us kids and, and the two adults. And uh, periodically, we'd have a day when we we dressed out a bunch and put them in the freezer. And, and it was uh, my brother's job and my job to, to take the washed up full of, uh, of remains up back somewhere and bury them. And us being youngsters, we didn't do a very good job at that. And, and pretty soon something was digging them up and hauling them away. And and um, I found out that it was being done by uh, raccoons. And, and the way I found out was I used one of those same old woodchuck traps and, and set it in the trail and caught one. So I was pretty thrilled at that and, and I thought I should probably try to catch some more. So, uh, you know, there was a... It's like a lot of things. There's a perfect storm. That was about the same years that the fisher population made a big comeback in this part of the state. Okay. And uh, so I got interested in, in fisher trapping. And uh, I had a cousin uh, who I thought was a rich cousin at the time, and he actually could get the Fur Fish Game magazine. And I get got to read some of the uh, issues when he was done with them. And, of course, I was just absolutely fascinated. And uh, there was a picture in there of a whole pickup load of fox furs from an ad by Bill Nelson. Yeah. And uh, from from there on, I was just I was hooked. There was no no doubt. So, were you one of those guys that in your in your teens you were making more money than your dad? <laughs> well, I I wouldn't say it was that way quite, but I was I was working toward that. I. Um, I made pretty good progress, especially once I got out of high school uh, and could could actually spend weekends, you know, two days in a row actually trapping and stuff. And, and I, I worked up into catching uh, red foxes uh, more often, and and, uh, and that kind of worked its way up. You know, first year catch three, and next year you catch twelve, and the next year you catch thirty, and the next year you catch sixty, and and uh, yeah. and then I. Uh, I actually went out and took a, a fox trapping lessons off in Ardale Graw, um, and I think that was 72, 1972 or so when I did that. I drove from Maine to, to uh, uh, South Dakota in, uh, in a 1968 International Scout pickup. <laughs> oh, man, was- that must have been a long drive. Yeah, you know, just you hold your foot on the floor. It was a four-cylinder uh, engine with a three-speed stick, and it didn't even have a radio in it. <laughs> and, but I just held it to the floor and drove up there. So what, what were some of the things you picked up or learned from Gras? Uh Probably the most important thing, the single thing that I learned from him was to to get better traps. I grew up on the old number two coil spring, Victor coil spring, and and um, he was using one and a half coil springs. That was they were slightly modified, but uh, they were much better, uh, much better fox trap than the number twos were. The number twos were too big, and the jaws were too thin, and the, the base plates, base plates were too skinny. If you actually caught anything bigger than a fox, and you know they had their issues, yeah. and um, and I converted to the one and a half Victor coil spring modified like he showed me, and and uh, it turns out they're just a fantastic fox trap. Yeah. yeah. 
Um, and, and it must have been kind of interesting getting your feet under you trapping during pretty good pretty good fur price times, right? Yeah, the, the, the prices were going up steadily during those years. Um, the, I remember the very first red fox I ever trapped. I got $2 for it. And, uh, and then in the 70s, they were they were going up through to, oh, I think at that time, about 40 bucks was wow. about the top I got. But that was a lot of money in the early 70s. Yeah. So, yeah. When did you start seeing the, the foxes uh, become less numerous and the coyotes come in? Well, um, my personal first coyote catch locally here was in 1972. Um, uh, uh, a local hunter had shot one in 1968. Um, but I, I'll tell you an interesting thing about the, the coyotes. Um, a man named Elwin Smith trapped one in 1942 in the town of Monmouth, which is not far from Augusta. And it was a rare enough animal that the article I read said they they shipped it to the University of Maine to find out what it was. Wow! And that and that was in 1942. But in the in the Cabela store in Scarborough, there's a picture taken of uh, Day Fur Company um, in, in 1943. And in that picture, there was a a, uh, a bundle of hides that can only be uh, eastern coyotes. And there's probably 10 or 12 of them. And, and the Day Fur Company was in Belgrade, which again is very close to Augusta. Mm -hmm. So they, you know, they had a little inroad of them apparently there. Yeah. But just nobody knows. Yeah, nobody knows why they seem to blossom so in the 70s. But, yeah. but basically that was it. Um, and I, I trapped in northern Vermont for several years back then as well in the early 70s. And they, they actually had quite a few coyotes up there. Hmm. And that was actually how I got to start to learn anything about coyote trapping was in Vermont. Did you have to make a lot of changes uh, as coyotes became more abundant in your area? Absolutely. Absolutely. Um, yeah, you didn't have to make any, obviously you didn't have to make any changes to catch foxes, but the coyotes would stand at the back edge of the pattern. That was back in the in the regular deer hole days of a fan-shaped pattern, and the coyote, you'd see the coyote tracks at the back edge of that. Um, once in a while, one would get in a one and a half, and once in a while it would actually hold one, but it certainly, it certainly showed the uh, all the weak points in the trapping system. Um, I had to start... I uh, I had some number three uh, jumps at the time, a single spring jump, the old vectors, and um, I, I found they actually made a, a pretty decent coyote trap if you did some work on the triggering system. They, they had a big floppy pan, and yeah. I had to basically night latch them to make the pan stay firmer, yeah. Yeah. you know, to keep some pressure on it. But they're really not a bad coyote trap. It, what do you mean by the the coyotes uh, standing in the back of the pattern? Well, I mean, it, the way I learned to make a, a dirt hole set back then was your trap was right up to the hole. And, uh, oh, okay, yeah, yeah. So, yeah. You know, the coyotes just longer-legged and stand, and they tend to stand back a, a little further anyway. 
and just get a sniff of what's there, and a lot of times they just go on their way. So you, you had to kind of adjust where you placed your traps in relation to the to the hole. Exactly, I was I was still just a dirt hole guy at the time, so I just had to move the trap back and and uh, you know I, I learned to trap more on the edges of the woods and in the in some of the logging roads and things where you you don't typically set for red foxes if you can avoid it. Um, but the coyotes liked it back in the cover a little better back. They run those old logging roads up there in northern Vermont. You know, that's not, that's not great agricultural country up there anyway, so you're more, yep. more wood strapping. Yeah. Huh. And well, you're, so you're, you're still canine trapping today. Uh, is that the bulk of what you do? Uh, yes. I, I had a, a lot of years in there. Basically what happened in the, as the fur prices kept going up, there was more and more competition, and and uh, I started a, a little uh, lure business. It was called White Mountain Animal Lures, and um, so I worked at that. I, I tried to make a living trapping and, and selling lures, uh, but my family kept growing, and the competition for the for trapping kept growing, and at some point, it was the early 80s, um, I had to make a choice, and so I, I sold the lure business and and um, got into logging, uh, you know, on a much larger scale. And so I didn't do much trapping for quite a few years there. I just couldn't. I I, I couldn't make it work. There were yeah, too many yeah. other guys out there, you know. Yeah, and you had to make you had to make a living. Yeah, people don't realize nowadays that you know. Uh, I I hope I'm not. Uh, sharing too much information but i think you caught like a hundred canines last fall is that right yeah yeah 98 and so Fox if you think if you think about back in those fur boom days you might be sharing those same animals with 10 other trappers <laughs> absolutely yeah absolutely they used to there, there was literally there'd be a dirt hole set in the, every corner of, of a field and uh, you know, one of them might be yours, or you might get there, and there was no room for any of yours if, if you wanted a corner. <laughs> yeah, and that you could yeah. set something up, and the animals have already been caught from that area. For most of them. Yeah, they're gone. Yeah, and it, it even got so bad. You, you you know, you'd go to get permission in places. Well, the farmers knew prices were up, and they'd say, "Well, you know, I want half of whatever you catch, and whatever you make oh, on your boy. catches." Uh, uh, you know, and it. It didn't work for me. Like I said, my family was growing, and so I went logging. And you became a forester, right? I did. I'll tell you what happened. And uh, I, I bought my first uh, uh, U.S. Forest Service sale in 1981, and um, I hired everybody who came along and went to work on them. And in a few years, I was chipped in and trucking and and. Uh, you know, running fellow bunches. And by the end of the 1980s, um, I could see that I wanted to do something different. So I got, I went and got my wood scaler's license and I went back to college and, and took a bunch of night classes and just sort of field classes and things. And I, I tested out for my uh, professional forester's license and, uh, a couple other things. I had a private pilot license and, and, um, my class A license with a 
and truck driving license. And um, so by the by the early 90s, I, I kind of transitioned out of logging and, and uh, did more forestry. Okay. And the that took you that took you a lot of different places. It did, Jeremiah, and um, I would have to say probably the best thing I ever did as an adult was to go back to school and get my professional forester's license and the other endorsements, the Class A uh, and the uh, the Woodscaler's license came in very handy. I I went to Alaska for the second time in nineteen ninety four. I I had been there previously for a few years working on the pipeline. And uh, then I, I went back up in 94 and and worked driving truck to the North Slope again, like I had done in the 70s. And then I went to work um, for one of the native corporations on, the, on their logging job and ended up as their forester on that logging job. And then when their markets uh, petered out on the West Coast there, I was actually hired by uh, the company Rainier, who had been buying our logs, and uh, they offered me a, a job in Far Eastern Russia to do uh, quality control work for them. <laughs> so I said, sure, why not? <laughs> yeah, how long were you in Russia? I was on that job five and a half years. Um, wow. And then I, I worked... I worked on a, another job up in central Siberia for a year. That was in uh, 2007. And um, after that, I, I came back to Maine in 2008 and uh, basically started trapping again. I had a lot more time to do it um, once I got back. Yeah, yeah. You're, uh, you're one of the few people who's got to see Russian trapping uh, up close and personal. What can you tell us about that experience? Well, uh, uh, my experience over over in the Russian Far East is the Russian Far East is is really pretty remote still. And um, if you wanted to find it on a map, you'd, you'd find Japan and go straight north. It's, we were uh, a couple hundred miles north of Vladivostok, and um, we were in what they call the maritime zone um, close to the North Pacific Ocean and, and the, the coastal range rises right off the, the uh, Pacific coast and and it's all boreal forest mostly spruce they, there's an awful lot of larch so the common fur bear up there the most common is, is the Russian sable and um, they have uh, an Asian lynx and they have red foxes and uh, they have uh, an occasional um, wolf, timber wolf, or Asiatic timber wolf. Mm-hmm. And uh, the one thing that surprised me the most, I guess, was was they have a, a beautiful little dark mink. And uh, I was very surprised that the Russians call them American mink. <laughs> so, uh, you know, not what you expect to hear, but, but it turns out they had had uh, numerous fur farms up there back in the 1920s and 30s, and mink are not native to Russia, oh, or at least really? to that part of Russia. So they, they imported American mink. Hmm. And wow. the ones there the ones there now are, are uh, you know, remnant populations of uh, either escapees or turnouts. Yeah. And the market crashed. 
So that was that was interesting to see what they had, and I got to do a little trapping. I I basically was on duty 24 hours a day, seven days a week for 90 days at a time. But I found time to sneak away and do a little, um, mostly sable trapping, and you yeah. catch them just like a pine martin. And uh, I got some. I actually bought some traps in Russia. They make a a, a pretty good copy of a. Uh, Blake and Lamb number one long spring and they make a couple of jump trap type of things but they're just horrible horrible devices cheaply made thin jaws yeah. and uh, I n- never ever saw uh, anything larger for a well made trap made in Russia in fact I never saw anything for a larger trap over there they, huh. they don't seem to they just can't afford it you think uh, well it, you have to remember that there's no real private enterprise over there to make them, yeah. uh, so they they have to be sanctioned by the government. And these little traps that I had um, were made by a company. It's the same company that would build tanks or trucks or, or you know chainsaws or, or sewing machines or whatever the government tells it to build. Mm-hmm. And uh, the the little trap had a, had some writing on it, and I couldn't. I couldn't figure it out, so I asked my interpreter, and he said, uh, uh, he said, is price uh, 1.5 kopeck, like gift from state? And uh, and that's what happens. The, the state distributes the traps, and these guys get it for virtually nothing. A kopeck and a half is is like no money. Okay. You know, yeah. that's, that's, what, that's what poor people throw away, kopecks. <laughs> <laughs> wow! Huh. But they would they would get these traps out to the various places and and uh, uh, guys would catch sables in them and and then of course the, the government gets a certain percentage of of whatever the the uh, fur sell for because the government still owns them. They just give a guy the right to trap them. Yeah, it's a, they they're like uh, they've got their hands in in just about every part of every business there. Huh? Absolutely. Absolutely, yeah. And all, virtually all of the land is is outside of the the towns themselves, and maybe even in the towns. I don't know, but it's all government-owned land. Uh, the only the only thing that people can can claim as their own most of the time is a, the government uh, provides them with a little plot of land outside of the cities. And they, and they build a little tiny house on it, and they call it a dacha. And uh, they have room for the little tiny house and a garden. <laughs> and, you know, I, I'm not sure percentage-wise, but I can tell you that an awful lot of Russians, they go, they get on the train uh, Friday evening after work, and they, they go out and spend the weekend out to the dacha, and all they do is grow food. Hmm. Wow. <laughs> And then on Sundays they bring back loads of, you know, big sack of beets or carrots or cabbages or potatoes. That's what they live on for the next week until they get back out there and do some more. Jeez, amazing, huh? So, so shifting gears, you you uh, you got to see Russia, but you came back and now you're you're retired and you're in the mode where you could trap full time. Um, what, that must have been quite a quite a different experience after going so many decades with trying to trap you know or not trapping or trying to squeeze it in yes and I, 
for me, it was a great thing. I mean, basically, I, I was uh, 60 years old when I came back here in, in 2008 and, and uh, realized that I could take off a few weeks. I was, I was still logging. I had a skidder and was still cutting wood just for myself. And and uh, I guess the, the biggest surprise, I know this will sound peculiar, but I guess the, the real big breakthrough for me was the, the fact that I could actually afford it. I mean, yeah, yeah. I, I mean, it's hard to explain, but I think I've I've read some things like in some of the books that Russ Common has written. He's explained. People said, "Well, how much fur did you catch?" And he said, "Well, I don't know. I can't even remember. I I had a buyer there every week or two, and and they just because he was making a living at it, you know, he needed money. Yeah, and uh, that's the way it was with me always earlier when when I was trapping. I I trapped hard. I mean. Uh, I can't tell you how many 20-hour days I put in it. Sometimes I'd have to stop in the middle of the next day and sleep for five or ten minutes before I could go check more traps. But, <laughs> uh, you know, and, and when I when I was 60 years old and come back to Maine, and, I mean, I had had a fairly successful career for a little country boy, and and uh, I wanted traps. I could go get them, and you know, I wanted to take some time off and go knock on doors and try to get permissions and things. And, and that's that was really the hardest part is like starting from scratch and trying to set up a line that will sure. that will actually amount to something. You know, you don't... I mean, I, I'm not bragging about a catch of last year, 98 fox and coyotes. I mean, I've, I've caught more than that some years, but, but, you know, they don't come easy down here. Where, people, Yeah, people don't realize how much of a feat that is in Maine where you have a 24-hour check, you have all the different regulations, and you have a lot, everything's private land for pretty much, and you have to get all the permission. Where you're at, all kinds of small parcels of land. It's a challenge. Exactly. Yeah, exactly. Uh, I've got lots of places where uh, you go get permission, and, and you know, you start, actually, i got one place that's five acres. I guess that's <laughs> about the smallest one. I have two traps on it. But I always catch fur there. Yeah. And, uh, you know, I got a lot of places that it, it's hard to get far enough from a building or, or occupied dwelling to, to meet the laws now. Yeah. Uh, and even if the landowner wants to wants you there trapping, sometimes you can't do it. Yeah. You know, it's just not room enough. And then, of course, we've got our weather is not real conducive because it, we're in such a wet area that it, it's either. Oftentimes it's either raining or it's snowing or it's somewhere in between. <laughs> so, our our fox and coyote trapping season is really, really squeezed. Um, the the first two to three weeks of October, um, this country is full of bird hunters, partridge hunters with their dogs, and uh, and in. You know, they put pressure on the coyotes. The coyotes have been out there all year by themselves pretty much, and now all of a sudden there's people walking in all these logging roads, and they get dogs with them and stuff, and, and the coyotes feel the pressure. And then we start trapping roughly the 20th of October, and we've got two weeks, and then the woods are full of deer hunters. Mm -hmm. And uh, the deer hunters do two things. They pressure coyotes by the simple fact that they push them and move them steadily day after day, even if they never see them. And uh, the other thing they do is they leave uh, deer paunches and stuff in the woods. And if, if 
if I've got two traps set on this logging road and there's a deer paunch down at the end of it, uh, those guys don't even slow up. They don't even glance at my stuff. They, they go down there. I really noticed I mean, that. I, I noticed that up here during uh, uh, the October moose season. When when that moose week comes, like the spots that I'd scouted out where the coyotes were, they're they're gone. Mm-hmm. They they're they're yep. wherever the gut piles are. Yep, and and they are on high alert too. It's just it's crazy to see the difference between unpressured coyotes and pressured coyotes. Yeah. <laughs> so so you know our effective uh, trapping season is pretty short, and uh, by the time the uh, the deer hunters start thinning out. Uh, you better have your eye on the sky because it's going to snow. And I, I don't know about up there, but down here, boy, once it snows, uh, you can't access a lot of this ground. Yeah. And the farmers don't want you out there riding around in the, with a four-wheel drive truck in the fields and stuff when when uh, when there's a bunch of snow on the ground. Well, the ground isn't frozen yet. You. Yeah, it's it's wet and it's not frozen. Exactly. Yeah, I have places every year that I have permission. This year you can get to it. Next year you can't. It's too wet. They don't even go because yeah. if you go, you'll get you'll get refused. Our problem is uh, there's a lot of places down, you know, further south, like where you are, where you may have a mix of rain and then and then that turns to snow during the storm, and and you may get mm-hmm. you know three four inches. Um, commonly though, here it it's common to get a foot of snow at a to a storm in even in november and so you know there's been times where we've had two feet of snow the first week in november um and and then you got to decide okay is it gonna melt um are we gonna get that warm up that we usually get or some years it doesn't you know it, it it'll you'll never see bare ground until the end of april so um, right it, yeah you, your season can be you can't oftentimes you know you know that you don't decide the end of your season. Mother Nature does. <laughs> That's right. That's right. I was I was watching a, a, a YouTube video this morning of a guy named Ed Snyder from yep. Kansas Trapline Products. I, I I know Ed. I like Ed. He was uh, he was remaking the set out there, and every time he put dirt in his sifter, big clouds of dust were coming off. <laughs> <laughs> and I thought, wow. <laughs> yeah. What a difference! Yeah, you know, he's, he's he was setting his traps barehanded, and and uh, big clouds of dust coming out of his sifter. Yeah, it's 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 totally different. But so so, what's your uh, uh, approach to fox and coyote trapping? Like just just in general, what what type of sets do you do you like to make? Uh, what what kind of uh, patterns or habits do you do you usually follow? Well, um, I guess uh, one of the changes that I learned when I came back here and started doing more coyote work was um, to start using more flat sets. And um, I pretty much now, I, I still like to put two sets to a location, and um, I split them between the two. I'll make a whole set, and I'll make a flat set. And I... I have reached a point where I blend even the whole sets. I, I don't have a visible dirt pattern. Okay. I like to blend it in. And um, I still, you know, I still use a regular hole, but I, I keep the dirt pattern 
the, the whole the dirt from the hole kind of piled up right in front of the, the hole, and the trap is back behind that little pile of dirt, and the and the trap is blended in. And uh, that pile of dirt is kind of the, a little bit of a, a foot a stepping guide. Yes, yes, it's a little bit of a barrier where where they would naturally place their foot behind it. Or at least that was my theory. Uh, the other set I use, I, I, I make a uh, flat set. I use two traps, and um, I use a little piece of a hollow stem. Um, this is a piece of a, a Japanese knotweed, which everybody knows is a Japanese bamboo. And uh, they're hollow. They, they get hard and dry in the fall. I just cut off little pieces of them on the uh, on the table saw. I go get big bundles of the stuff and saw them in eight, eight inch lengths and they're hollow and they're dry and they're hard and, and I, I use them to hold my my lure or bait as the case may be and and I, I like them because they're totally inert, they're totally harmless. You can go off and leave them and you know you never have to worry about any any tractor tires or pickup tires or ATVs or nothing. It's just a little hollow stick. But I also make flat sets. I've used I use golf balls. I've got numerous coyotes on a golf ball. <laughs> really? Uh, yeah, I drill a hole on one side and stick six inches of dowel in it so that I can stick it in the ground so it'll stay there. Yeah. And uh, just lure it and, and set it on the edge of a, of an opening of any kind, a sand pit or a log yard or a field, and and. Um, Put them two traps out in front of it. I used wooden blocks and black blocks, um, you know, six inches long, four inches square. And yep. Char yeah. it in a fire. And I've got coyotes and bobcats and <laughs> all sorts of stuff on them. I mean, well, it's interesting. And I guess that's one of the things I find so fascinating about it, Jeremiah, is this everybody's got their own system out there, and they all seem to work. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, you know, I mean, really, if you if you think of all the guys that give trapping demonstrations and and uh, they all doing something a little different and they're all successful, it I don't know. Just, yeah, I find it very interesting. And the same with baits and lures. We have some there's guys out there now making great stuff, um, and yet again, there's what 50 guys out there doing it, and they're all different, and they all work. So it's awfully hard to say do this or don't do that. Sure, um, I'm curious on your flat sets. Do you how much uh, do you like to guide an animal's uh, foot in, into those sets? Well, when I when I do it, the, the main the main way that I guide um, an animal's foot on the flat set is remember I'm using two traps, so you're looking you look at basically. Uh, think of a letter A and, and the, the, my little stick or my golf ball or whatever is at the tip of the A and the two traps are, are down the two legs of the A and I try to put them far enough apart so that I can put something between them and um, if, if the traps are 8-10 inches apart or a foot apart I will put the appropriate or oh, a, a lump of dirt uh, or uh, a small rock um, in between them, and that basically forces the animal to go one side or the other of it. 
Mm-hmm. And it's like you know, they talk about the animal coming in on a 45-degree angle, and I guess that's what I'm making them do. Yeah. They can't approach it directly on, so they're going to go one way or the other. And that, that seems to work. Sometimes it'll just be tough to grass in between them. Sure. Just something for a little guy. Yeah. And do you, do and you by, look to and, have any backing or do you place your stick uh, or your object somewhere where it's kind of uh, hard to approach from the back or does that factor in at all? I, I, I do. I do. Either one of those is uh, equally effective. I, I like to put, I like to trap directly on the edge of, of something um, so that the, the backing may simply be the fact that the, the, the uh, brush is thicker behind it. Yeah. Uh, raspberry, raspberry bushes is a very common thing. And uh, they're not going to go through the raspberry bushes if they can help it. Yeah. Uh, they'll come around this side, and it's, it's a very natural guide for them. Clumps of grass work or an edge of a field or uh, a furrow in a, in a, in a row. You know, the edge furrow in a, in a corn row. Yep. Uh, they'll all work. Yeah, that makes But, sense. yes, I, I, I like the backing for, I like the backing for you know, either type of set, whether it's a whole set or a, or a, or a flat set. And uh, when yeah. I, I saw your demo there a couple of weeks ago, you you mentioned your your ideas behind why you you set two traps uh, at, at your sets. Do you do that? in uh, every set or most of your sets and what's your thought process for using two traps well the thought process is is that uh, uh well i read a lot and i go back and if you go back and read uh, uh wayne king's coyote trapping book wolves and coyotes and back in the 30s and and if you read jim mass uh Articles and books and and a lot of these old old time trappers, coyote trappers, uh, you read the fine print and they use two traps at a set and they did it on a regular basis and um, I thought well I'd like to do that but I I, I don't want to have to do uh, two big separate stakes and all this kind of thing so I made up a a type of uh, two-trap setup so that each trap has three swivels and then it connects to the uh, to the chain stake that I drive in the ground. And if my um, if my trap chains are 10 inches long, I, I have theoretically as much as oh, 18 inches of spread between them or something like that. And that seemed appropriate and it matched up with the, uh, the pictures and articles that I had read that these old-timers did. My interest was really in, in trying to uh, catch a higher percentage of animals uh, at fewer stops. Mm-hmm. Because, I, like I said, I, I started doing this more seriously when I was 60. And, um, you know, my shoulders worn out and my knees bad. And, and uh, I, I said, well, you know, I've seen too many coyote tracks at the, that where they go right by. Or they, they just don't, don't approach pro- properly. And um, so I started doing that double set, and uh, it really does make a difference. I'm convinced of that. I think uh, I think it's a, a guy named Major Bodiker has done these uh, coyote studies, and they claim you can increase your catch by 30% by doing two traps instead of one at every set. Now, they did it by some scientific method, uh, and 
I have no reason to doubt them. I, I think it's true. But, 30% you know, it certainly seems can. worth putting the extra trap. I, I think I'm going to start doing doing that now and trying it out just because uh, uh, and that's a that's a huge increase in, in effectiveness. It is. And even if it's exaggerated, uh, it still provides me with uh, more chances to catch animals with, with less stops. Not necessarily less traps, but it's a lot faster for me to set that that, that two traps set and a single trap set at one stop than it is to set all single traps and have to drive more miles and make more stops. Yeah, yeah. And, you know, and, and because, I was thinking I, I was yeah. thinking the same thing you were initially was, well, I don't want to have to pound two, two different stakes in the ground. So that's a great <laughs> idea to just connect them to the same system, same the same stake. Yeah, and... Uh, over the years, I've become a, a, a great, uh, oh, I don't know what the word is, tinkerer, I guess we used to use in name. <laughs> yep. And uh, modifier, I, I fool with everything. I, I've gone to all chain stakes with all number three chain on them. And um, I build my own swivels for my traps. And um, I, I obviously build all my chain stakes. And I modify every trap. I, I uh I will not set a land trap anymore unless it is uh, offset jaws and and uh, if the jaws are uh, uh, laminated. Yeah. Yeah. With the exception of some that come with big, heavy, right. thicker jaws. And, and, and again, I, in, in you made state, you I made think. quite a a back saving so, uh, invention that I bought. I bought one from you here a couple weeks ago. That stake puller that. Boy, that's saved a lot of work, huh? Yes, I, I went through the, the same issues when I switched over from, from pounding in steel stakes to these chain stakes. I said, how am I going to get it out of the ground? And and uh, I started out with a T-shaped stake puller, and and uh, then I modified it and and remodified it. And, and I finally come up with this uh, stake puller that I've sold a few now, and uh, Everybody that's had one and used it claims it's the, absolutely the best thing they've used, and I, I'm quite pleased with them. It it uh, it was more of a labor of, of desperation when I started out because I I had injured my back and had an operation and I simply could not pull in stakes, so I, I had to build a stake puller where I could push down on it, and uh, eventually I got lucky. Yeah, come up with this design. Yeah, it looks pretty slick. Um, uh, oh, one thing I was thinking about. So you, when you have those two traps and they're both uh, connected to the same uh, chain stake, do, do you have, uh, I'm just trying to visualize that. Do, if you're setting in like a grass sod area, do, do you have to modify the way you, you uh, cut out your trap beds in order so you don't have that, that uh, chain connecting the two traps sitting on top of the ground? That's right. That's you. You uh, you basically you make your two trap beds, and and uh, I put the uh, the trap stake under one or one of them or the other, usually or close to it, so it's in the same trap bed. And then of course you got to cut a notch to go across to the other one. And I guess that's another uh, part of the uh, the uh, stepping guides. Oh, that okay. I use because yeah. I, like I said, I always put something between the traps that sticks up so they won't step there. 
and that's a, that is also part of the reason for doing that. Yep. Is because the change the change got to be there. If I have a if I have a spot where I I want both traps out full lengths of the chains, uh, certainly you know you, you drive her in between them and and uh, notch the grass a little bit and get those chains under and and then usually what happens is it would be a piece of sod that came out of the trap bed that I would uh, set in between them to make that uh, foot guide. Yep. Yep. That makes sense. Any other uh, gadgets or things that you've in, invented to help you become more efficient? Oh, well, yes. I, I, <laughs> I built my own uh, trapping hammer. Um, I simply could not find one that was comfortable and, and uh, suitable. I, I busted a lot of hammers. and, and I, I find a lot of the trapping hammers with a blade on the front of them. The blade is at an angle, and it, they really don't work as well as having a straight blade. And I couldn't find one with a straight blade on it, so I made one. And, uh, and the steel, uh, the quality bet, of the steel is no good on those blades, pounding against No, them. and the one, the one that I make is... Uh, made from uh, a used chainsaw bar, and uh, those have excellent spring steel in them, yeah. and they're the perfect, the perfect thickness, and uh, I, uh, I welded onto the front of a three-pound sledgehammer head that I buy down to Harbor Freight you know, for like 11 or 12 bucks, and I also buy a 22-ounce framing hammer, which is all steel. Okay. Uh, it has a steel head, steel shank, all, all one piece uh, hammer, and I and I cut the framing hammer head off of it and and stick the handle in through the three pound sledgehammer head and weld it in. Yeah. And then you've got an excellent ergonomic handle on a three pound sledgehammer head, and uh, if you use that uh, piece of a chainsaw blade, that's uh, I make them two inches wide. Which is, which is what most all of them are, and grind that off at a sharp angle, and man, you've got a tool there. <laughs> I mean, you can't hurt it. Yeah. You know, it's not not like it's got a wooden handle or a fiberglass handle or anything, and that you can eventually break. And and so the, those chainsaw bars, they're they're flexible, and but you still you find they're they're still stiff enough to to dig through and and uh, not. Uh, yes. Yeah. And, the reason they're flexible is they're made from spring steel, and uh, spring steel is as good as you can get. And, and they're free. I mean, you, right. almost everybody knows knows somebody that's got one, uh, yeah. or any saw shops have got a pile of them that they discarded. Yeah, and, yeah. Uh, I made mine off a, a vehicle leaf spring, and that's the the same way it's it's sti stiffer but it's i mean you can pound as many rocks as you want and you're never going to put a, a a chip or a dent or anything in that steel yep those are those are excellent i did not use a piece of leaf spring just because i had the bars and and uh, they're a little bit lighter yeah the leaf spring it, it, mine is, is too heavy i think if i ever get it into it in a serious way uh, uh there'll be some ergonomic issues <laughs> So, be nice yeah, and and that that ergonomic issue gets to be much more important here after a while. You'll find out. <laughs> yeah. Um. So so Alvin, some people will know you from 
some articles that you've written. I know I've seen a couple of your articles in Trapper's World. How long have you been doing that? Oh, not long. I just, uh, uh, I get bored in the wintertime here now, and so I've uh, started putting a few of my experiences and thoughts on, on paper, and, and I like that little magazine, Trapper's World, and, and uh, you know, nobody writes for for the money. No. Nope. <laughs> but it's it, it just kind of fun to see something in print. And, yeah. And uh, I've enjoyed it. I'm I'm hoping to do some more this winter. And, yeah, good. Uh, you had yeah, one everybody's on, seen it. You had one that I think would be good for people getting ready for trapping season. It was about how you uh, prepare your truck to be, or you've modified your truck to be more efficient for the trap line. Yes, yes, it's like uh, back to the modification type of thing, and I have to do that to my truck as well because um, it's, I just don't find them handy the way they the way that they are. And I'm always surprised more people don't do stuff to their trucks. I mean, I I take the tailgate off of mine, and um, I I built a wooden box that fits right in the back of the bed. It makes access to to my equipment so much easier than, than dealing with a big old heavy pickup tailgate. Yeah. I mean, they, they build them like a bank vault door, you know, and they're just too heavy for an old guy. Yeah. Yeah, and so, even I, I noticed you even have uh, your pail, your, your your trapper's pail is like a couple of five gallon buckets riveted together, so it's it's uh, sort of oblong yeah. and much bigger. That, yeah, that's right. I, you know, I, I found a five-gallon bucket. Everything stands has to stand up straight, and and whatever you're after is underneath them. Yeah, yeah. And uh, so I, you're right. I, I took two five-gallon buckets, and one of them I cut in half, and the other one I simply split down one side, and I opened it up appropriately, and and uh, fitted the two together. So. I, I call that my seven and a half gallon bucket, and, uh, and then I, I fitted one of the handles back to the top of it, and and you know some of our track tools are, seem to be bigger than they used to be. I mean, I got that, that big stake driver, and and uh, I use an all steel trowel. The one I have was made by J C Connor, and it's just an excellent, excellent tool, but they're long. And uh, I, I actually had to shorten it a little bit so that I could get it to even to lay down at an angle in my in my bucket. And I just needed the room. So, and it lets me, by having this extra size, it, it allows me to reach down past the tools and pick up anything that's at the bottom of the of the, of the bucket, like a, a choosing where your traps are or your pokements where your pliers end up or your you whisper them or whatever else you're using. Yep. Yeah, for sure. Um, I'm curious while, while we're talking about, uh, coyote trapping, what's, do you have a philosophy on, on the use of bait and lure? Like how much you use, what you like to use, how much you change up and, or do you stick with the same thing and so on? Uh, well, I like more than one odor at a set. I guess that, and I, I, I don't like the baits to be too rank, but I like the lures to be fairly strong. And I, you know, they're, they're, again, there's a million modifications to that, and nobody does it wrong. Um, 
but that's my personal preference is a is a, a pretty good smelling bait. Something they could eat. You know, basically that's that's uh, my my guideline as well. Is it something they'd want to eat? Yeah. If it is, it, it's good to go. And I, I use a lot of beaver meat. I grind it. Um, I don't I don't just chop it up in chunks. I, I grind the beaver meat and I'll let it set for two or three days and then I'll just stop it yep. with sodium benzoate. And, and uh, you can change the odors. You can put some castor in or some and some you can leave straight. Or, uh, you know, there's a few other nice mild ingredients you can put into it. And then on the on the lures, I I kind of go with a well a stronger either a either a gland odor or a, uh, a skunky type odor, a kind of a sharp odor. I don't like I don't like blazing skunk odors because I think they they don't necessarily have to get too close to know what went on. Sure, yeah. But I I like an odor that's kind of glandy and and then got a little hint of skunk to it. Uh, it seems to work quite well for me. Yeah, yeah. It's not much of a philosophy, but it's just what works <laughs> for me. Yeah, <laughs> philosophy is a pretty strong strong word. Yeah. That that is true. Yeah, I probably picked the wrong word there, but uh, I, you're you're a wax dirt guy too, right? My what? Uh, oh wax, yeah, wax. Dirt. Yeah, yeah. Yes, I, I make, I make again. I make my own wax dirt, and I use the solar method. And I had an, actually had a tough time this year getting enough. <laughs> yeah, we uh, didn't. We didn't uh, have enough. very hot weather in August this year. Oh, it's just crazy. Yeah, I had to work hard to, to get it made. And uh, you know the the thing with wax dirt, it's expensive. No matter what you do, no matter even make it yourself, whatever you do, it's expensive. Uh, the wax is expensive, and, and it's um, it's time expensive. Yeah, and uh, that's the only drawback to it. But other than that, it's the greatest stuff going, as far as I'm concerned. I I know, yeah, especially the conditions that we trap in in Maine. And I know you have a little yeah. a little trick for people on how to make that wax dirt last a little bit longer. Well, yes, uh, you know, because it's expensive to make and difficult to make. Um, I do not use wax dirt underneath my traps. Um, if the ground is soft enough for me to dig a bed and drive a stake in, uh, then I sprinkle the underneath of the, the bottom of the trap bed. I, I sprinkle it with calcium chloride. Uh, or you can use pickling salt, but calcium chloride is cheaper to buy and it comes in bulk. And um, uh, you keep a oh just a little quart container of it in your trap toolbox or basket or whatever you happen to be using, the bucket in my case. And um, when you when you dig your trap bed and uh, fit your trap down in there, you then uh, pull it back out and sprinkle that bed with uh, a, a light sprinkling of calcium chloride. And that will prevent the underside of the trap from freezing and keep it from freezing down and then save your wax dirt to go around the sides of the trap and over the trap, and uh, and then top it off with a little brushing of the of the native soil or the native finish there to blend it in. And I find that you know over time, I mean it it saves a lot of wax dirt. 
and I always try to cut the trap bits uh, square and the sides of them square so that you're not filling in a big oval shaped or bowl shaped hole with your wax dirt. And that saves a lot of it too if you make your trap beds uh, sharper on sharper on the edges. And, and I, do, I do a lot of that now simply by I'll dig out the original trap bed and then I use my hammer to pound it out to the proper size. And I find by doing that, again, I can save an awful lot of dirt. Yeah, yeah, for sure. Especially if you're, you're making a lot of sets, so it adds up. That's right, that's right. And if you can visualize it, you make your, when you dig your trap bed, out, you, so you, you dig a, an oval hole there the size of a small bowl, and then you take your trapping hammer, which has got a nice square head on it, and you pound those sides out. And you pound them back. They're the perfect length and width for your springs. Uh, and um, and you pound the sides out to whether you're using a, a rectangular trap or a round trap. No matter. And pound them out to the appropriate size and shape. Well, every edge of that hole is straight up and down. And um, and if, if your trap will set down in there, that's all you need. Yep. Because as, as you pour your wax dirt on it, it fills in the voids and goes down around the, the jaws and and it don't take much wax dirt as, as an insulation barrier to keep it from freezing. Yeah. It just basically takes one layer of dirt between the the trap and the trap bed. Yeah. So. So it'll save you. So 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 you're going through this whole process and you're catching a bunch of canines, having a good trapping season. Then it comes time to skinning. <laughs> what are your thoughts on skinning? Well, I was having a real tough time getting them scum here a few years ago because um, because of my back issues and arthritic hands and things. And I I finally uh, I I tried to hire some guys and I went through three or four skinners. In fact, I think I mentioned that in one of those little articles I wrote. Um, and I I finally I finally built my own steel framed skinning machine. And uh, I, I bought the winch for that down to, uh, again, I get Harbor Freight. And that's been a tremendous, tremendous help. I can, uh, I, I had to, actually had to have an addition put on my trap shed so I could get the thing up high enough to skin a coyote. Oh, yeah. Uh, but basically what it does, it, it, the electronic winch just lifts the things up. And um, then I use a... Uh, uh, a foot pedal that clips to the would clip to the legs of the coyote as you start to skin it, and I, it applies downward pressure to the skin. And it it's, it doesn't the machine does not do the skinning. It the machine simply applies pressure and lets me do the skinning without having to pull on the hide. Okay. And that thing just whew, so you just you're just making little changer. quick little cuts with the knife and keeping yep. keeping pressure on it. Yeah, and, and keeping the pressure on it. Yeah, yeah. Now, I, you know, I've seen the, all the videos where the guys skin a coyote in five minutes, and, and I, I congratulate them. But uh, I can't do that. But it it no longer takes me an hour either. Yeah. Like you, like you <laughs> and uh, that plus I got my brother-in-law to help me now, so that helps quite a lot. Nice. He's a great big, great big rugged rugged guy, and I give him a call after he gets his chores done. He'll come over and. Pull on coyote hides. So. Good deal. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. You, yeah. You really, you have to, you have to figure something out. It's either 
it's either you have to take more time, you got to get help, or you got to find ways to be more efficient because, boy, that, that takes, like we were saying, you know, there's only a certain amount of time. It's a short season, and you got to spend, you got to be out there making sets and, and checking sets uh, to, in order to yep. actually catch, you know, catch numbers. Yes, and it, it does become a problem. I mean, I, I have quite a few days that I end up having to come home early and instead of being able to put out fresh set when I'm done checking, I simply have to come home because I have to do the skinning and I have to have some sleep. Yeah. You know, I mean, I just reached my limit at, at, at this age. I just I know what I have to do, and, and you're right. It interferes. You should be out there putting out more sets. And uh, if you can't figure out a way to get your skin in done quicker, you're in, you can get in trouble. <laughs> you can get ahead of yourself because if you don't, yeah. have, you know, freezer space is not unlimited, and it's a warm right. time I mean, of year. Yeah, you can catch more fur than than you can handle if you're not careful. That's right. And I know that's a crazy thing to say because how does we work to get them? But but it don't take a whole lot of fur to, to be more than you want to do after you get home some night. Yeah. Now, I had I had one other. Can you believe we've already been talking for an hour? You said you weren't long winded. Oh my! <laughs> <laughs> I, I'm I'm blaming you. Uh, yeah, I mean, it's when you when you, this kind of stuff, you know, you start talking about it and you just totally forget about the time. It's just, it's uh, it's enjoyable. It's enjoyable to yeah. hear different people's uh, the way different people do things, um, and and you can always pick yeah. things up. So I, I'm yeah. interested because you're you probably read more about trapping and read more trapping books and articles than most other trappers. Uh, do you have some recommendations on trapping books that uh, you think people should should read? <laughs> well, I know this is not a helpful answer, but really, you should read them all. <laughs> Well, and, and the reason I say that, Jeremiah, I'm not trying to really dodge it, but, um, you know, I, I mentioned before, when I get serious about trying to catch more coyotes, I started with the stuff written back in the 1930s. Mm-hmm. You know, them guys, were, they were catching a lot of coyotes. And, um, I, I got, of course, you've got to modify. you got you got to be able to think them, think them through and, and uh, you get a little bit here, and you get a little bit there. And uh, I have a I have a stack of trapping books that, let's see, if if I put them in one stack, these are instructional books. They would they'd probably be two feet tall. Yeah. Uh, my wife just said more than that, but. Uh, <laughs> and and I, you know, I periodically go through them and and uh, read them again. I still do. I mean, I, <laughs> and it's it's not just for enjoyment either. I mean, I'm I'm trying to learn more. I I've learned that a lot of the stuff I I read, um, I, there's something that I I haven't connected the dots just yet. So I read it and it doesn't sink in. But then when I f- learn more about the topic, and then I read that again, all of a sudden it clicks, and it's like yeah. Well, I, you know that didn't make as much sense to me the first time I read it, but now it makes perfect sense. Yes, and I've had that happen again and again and again. Is 
as you gain more experience, those books are more valuable. There, there really is some good stuff in them. And it doesn't seem like it a lot of times in the, the first trip through, but yeah. But uh, once you, once you get a little more mileage under your belt, boy, you go back and say, "Hey, that old guy knew what he was talking about." <laughs> uh, so, so that's pretty good advice. Pick up everything that you can get your hands on, um, and read read as much trapping material as you have time, as you can make time to read. Yep, yep. If you can absorb it, you should you should read it. Yep. And I, I mean, if it, if it's, uh, you know, no sense reading it if, if you don't find it interesting or if, it, if you're too tired and don't have time and things like that. Because a lot of those books actually have a, a, a lot of good advice in them, but it's uh, quite often it's just a single sentence. Uh, and, and if you're not quick enough to pick up exactly what they mean and, and understand the background, and a lot of times it just goes by, you know, we just don't get it. Yeah. And there's there, no doubt there's some bad advice in some of those books too. It's just, it's just like oh, talk, <laughs> talking to an old timer, you know, you just got to take it for the context that it's written in. Yeah. Yeah. I'm, I don't think a guy should be using three ends with three feet of chain on them. <laughs> Although it came highly recommended in one book. Yeah. You know, but it, but the book. I mean, you got to remember the book was in 1975 or so. So yeah, uh, yeah. They, but they were just learning. And really. and you don't, you know, guys talking about you pretty much have to have a hazmat suit on, uh, and and leave all your clothes outside after you wash them with scent-free detergent, and and uh, in, in order to go trap a fox. Yeah, well, you know, we used to think that. Yeah, that's right. We really did. So. Um, I use I use what I would call a normal um, caution. I mean, I, I wear rubber boots, but I wear rubber boots as much to keep my feet dry as I do to prevent the coyote from smelling my feet. Yeah. I mean, you know, our, our falls are damp. We're every morning wet, and, and uh, I want to be comfortable. Yeah. So I wear rubber boots. I w- I wear some real cheap uh, rubber gloves to handle my traps and things. And again, it's it's as much for me uh, as it is for the animals. Uh, it only makes sense to to try to stay clean, you know, what you can. Yeah. But it it doesn't have to be a hazmat suit. It's it's not really rocket science. I mean, I've gotten out there lots of times and made three trips back and forth before I had everything that I wanted out to the set and back to the truck. Uh, and that's especially true on a remake. If you're going to, let's say you're going to move that trap over out of the catch circle, uh, you got to tell you, take your uh, stake puller out there, and if you've caught something, you got to lug that back, and then you got to lug your new traps out. And, yeah. <laughs> you know, you're, you're laying down a fair little tools. bit of scent in that case. <laughs> yeah, yeah, and I, I can't see, I can't see it makes any difference. Yeah. You know? If you wear rubber boots and go once, or wear rubber boots and go three times, I don't think it matters. Yeah, you know they, they know you're there anyway for the first day or two. And after that, they don't care. I'm sure they still know you've been there. Yeah, but they also they encounter people all the time anyway, and after after a while, they say, eh, "Keep going." Yeah, yeah, for sure. No. no. So, so um, is there anything else that? that's come to mind for you while we're talking that I missed that you'd like to, to mention or talk about? 
boy. Yeah, nothing springs to mind, Jeremiah. Yeah. I think we beat up on the subject pretty well. <laughs> I'm sure we could beat on it more if we wanted to, but. Um, oh, I'm sure. Yeah, it it's uh, that's a good thing about getting together, going to those those uh, rendezvous is uh, you, you start talking on a topic and and you could really get going and, and learn from each other and, and uh, like those demos sometimes it's just the back and forth having a conversation with people in the audience and and uh, you think of things you never thought about before oh absolutely yeah yeah that's that's for me that's probably the best part of it is asking guys asking questions and, and telling you what what they've done. And it's really interesting what you can learn. Yep. Well, very good. Alvin, I really appreciate this. It was great talking with you. And uh, Well, thank you. Yep. Thank you. I, I enjoyed it. All right. And we'll, yeah. we'll look forward to seeing you again and, and uh, hopefully seeing more articles this winter. Okay. <laughs> okay. I'll, uh, I'll see what I can do. All right. Sounds good. Thanks very All much right. and take care. All right. Thank you. All bye. Right, bye. Well, I really enjoyed talking with Alvin. I hope you guys enjoyed listening in. And uh, you, you can always learn a lot of things. And it's great to see a trapper who is uh, older and not set in his ways, always learning new things. And guy likes to read, reads as much trapping material as he can get a hold of. Uh, I'm kind of similar. I, li- I like to read as well. So that was kind of fun to talk with someone else who's, who's into that and interested in the history of things. But anyway... Now it's time for the Cotsbros message of the week. Cotsbros is in the market for glands, skunk essence, and beaver caster. They're always buying, but right now they're particularly interested and they're providing prices and uh, all, all the recent updates and instructions and so on on their website, cotsbros.com. There's an update as of September 21st that's valid right now and shows what they're buying, what they're paying for for it and instructions on how to ship any order over a hundred dollars worth of value they're going to pay for the shipping so you don't have to worry about that and uh, you know any animal that you catch a large numbers of you should be thinking about saving the glands really if you're not saving them for your own use or you're you're catching more than you you can use yourself save them up put them in the freezer freeze them fresh Uh, when you get a bunch together get a hold of cots bros uh, coyote glands, for instance, they're paying $100 a gallon for coyote glands. And, you know, you pile up the coyotes, the glands can add up. You know, you're, you're not just taking anal glands on those. You you have um, your anal glands, hot glands, urine bladder, sex organs, neck glands. So so that can add up. That can pay some bills and, and help add, uh, add to the very meager fur check that we're likely to get this fall. So check them out, cotsbros.com. Go to the blog, and you'll see the most recent post is their... Uh, gland essence and caster prices and instructions all right guys till next time thanks again for listening in as always keep on talking trapping keep on thinking trapping we'll catch you on the next episode